I have a lot of respect for our Catholic friends. They are consistent when it comes to issues of life and death. They say no to the death penalty, no to euthanasia, no to abortion. If you've just arrived here today, you're in a series of sermons. Uh, this is the fourth on sensitive subjects this summer. And today it's, it's one that's pretty difficult, life and death. And my responses are a little more nuanced than the Roman Catholic Church. So I'll try to present my position, not to convince you to come to my side or my understanding, but for you to come to your own understanding. The whole sermon series is around, can we talk? I'm hoping that this is a safe place, a sanctuary, where we can treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and can even disagree. So I want to be your pastor, even if you don't agree with me where I come out on things today. In the Genesis passage that we had read, we see that human life is precious. It's precious because we're created in the image of God. And so if human life is taken by someone, then that life is forfeited also. It's, it's kind of an eye for eye, tooth for tooth kinds of thing. That person will be put to death. This was written a long time ago when the, the Hebrew children were coming out of bondage in Egypt and they were trying to establish order. And that's uh, kind of a first layer of understanding. If, if you read later in the Old Testament, those first five books of the Old Testament, there's at least 11 different offenses that you can qualify for the death penalty. Would you like to hear those 11? And, and see how you stack up, okay? Beyond murder, there's kidnapping, stealing. There's all kinds of sexual sins like incest, bestiality, adultery, a man lying with another man. I'm sorry for Harry Potter, but sorcery and wizardry are out. Blaspheming God. Performing work on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Cursing your parents. Anybody qualify for the death penalty here? Don't you see it? We all deserve to die if you were to be strict in the Old Testament kind of sense here. There were five reasons uh, for having the death penalty. One was retribution. You make the crime pay, right? Another was uh, deterrence. You keep others from doing the same kind of thing. A third was to promote safety. A fourth was to bring healing and closure. And a fifth was an economic reason. I'm going to go through each of these and tell you where I come out, and it's basically I'm against the death penalty. <laughs> that eye-to-eye -eye retribution kind of thing, before you jump all over that, please know that that was a merciful response at that time. Before that was written in the Hebrew code, if someone gouged out your eye, then you could go kill them. <laughs> if someone killed a member of your family, you could wipe out their whole family. It was disproportionate retribution. So an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth, it limited the response. But I'm a Christian. <laughs> and Jesus, when he talks about this, says... No, we're, we're full of mercy. And Jesus says, you all deserve to die, and so I take your death upon myself. We have a symbol of death in front of our sanctuary, a symbol of the death penalty at that time. And this is an object that keeps before us the mercy of God always. 
For the deterrence factor, I'm not so sure the death penalty is causing that much deterrence these days. Uh, I did a lot of research for this sermon. In, in the state of Texas, we are the leaders in the death penalty. Did y'all know this? Uh, there, there was a moratorium in the death penalty from 72 to 76, but since 76 in the state of Texas, we have put to death 527 people. The next nearest state is Oklahoma. In that same period of time, they've done 112. Okay? Um, I'm not sure this is slowing down violent crime uh, for us to have the death penalty in the state of Texas. I could see a safety factor. Yes, I, I mean, we need to have laws. We need to have order. That makes sense to me. For healing and closure, I'm not so sure this is a great uh, reason for having the death penalty. Uh, Pastor Lisa has just come from Boston, and her church was very near the scene of the Boston Marathon bomber. And if you remember reading the papers, there were some of those families that were affected by that, that crime that said, oh, please don't do the death penalty. Please give life in prison so that we don't have a recurring uh, appeal process. And it's just like tearing off uh, the, the, the opening the womb all over again. And, and that gets to the economic reason, too. I don't know that it makes economic sense because this appeal process is very expensive. It's, it's, it's maybe worse. There's some other reasons I'm, I'm against the death penalty. Uh, one of them is because of the Innocence Project, and some of you have been keeping up with that, where um, there has been poor representation in court, uh, or later evidence uh, was revealed through DNA or something like that that proved the innocence of this person that was convicted for this crime. There are botched executions. I'm not even going to go there. You know the stories of how it has almost bordered on cruel and unusual punishment in some situations. Several weeks ago, I talked about the new Jim Crow laws and how there's a disproportionate number of people in prison on death row and executed because of their skin color. Back to Texas leading the death penalty. I opened my emails this morning, and I'm on this email server list for a group that is against the death penalty. And kind of the lead... Um, thought was, even in Texas, we're beginning to rethink our stance. It said that there has not been one person sentenced to death in the state of Texas in this year. We've gone seven months as a state without sentencing anyone to death. There have been three major trials where that was offered as part of the penalty phase, and each time it was rejected. Here's the main reason that uh, I reject the death penalty. And it's not just because the United Methodist Church does. We have a book called The Book of Discipline that orients us as Methodists. And our Book of Discipline, it very clearly says that we are against capital punishment. If you want to know the general church stance. As a worship team, we were talking this past week, and Frank uh, said it very well. He said, the death penalty denies God the opportunity to transform a person. Remember the word penitentiary. <laughs> And the root of that word, it's the same word for penitent, for repentant, repentance. It's, it's giving that person a chance to reform their life to, and have an encounter with Christ and maybe become a new person because they, they realize what they have done. Um, in my former church in Portland, Texas, down on the coast, I had a, a woman in my church whose son was murdered. It was captured on closed circuit TV. He was... Uh, one of those persons who worked in the convenience store, they are at the checkout, and, 
And this, another young man came in just about his same age. He was high on drugs. He, I mean, he was not rational. And, and, and he killed them. Just, I mean, just like that. Played on the TV stations there. It was horrible. This mom in my church who lost her son established a relationship with her son's murderer. <laughs> yeah. She wrote him letters. She got permission to be on his visitor list. She went to see him in prison. They got close. The young man came to Christ. He was transformed. He was put to death. On the day of his death, she was on the NBC Today show. And she said, I forgive him. I believe God has forgiven him. And she said, I believe that another mother has lost her son today. Now, there are two moms who've lost two sons today. How can you respond as Christians, as followers of Christ today? One of the things is to get educated, uh, to get involved in the process. There's all kinds of sources on the internet today to uh, become an advocate for those who are most vulnerable, for those especially who've not gotten adequate representation. I read a horrible story where uh, a person was uh, convicted to death here in the state of Texas whose lawyer basically slept through the trial and the uh, higher courts didn't overturn it. Amazing kind of stuff. Um, so, so do that. Uh, write letters uh, to those who are in power. Um, write letters to prisoners. Uh, Get involved with those in prison. I, I've, I've been talking about the storybook project. Lynn is up front here, and I saw several of y'all wearing your storybook project today. I know you don't deal with death row inmate people, but there are women. Do you? I don't think so, right? We go into the units that house them, but we don't work directly. Right, or into those units, but not directly with those people. That, that was my memory, that these are... Uh, but you, you take uh, these storybooks, and you have the moms read to their kids. They record those. The... Those are then mailed to the children, and so they have that book, and they have their mom's recording, and they can go to sleep with that. So we're dropping the barriers between us and people who are in prison. Um, there's folks from this church who are in Kairos ministry that, that take a three-day spiritual retreat inside the prison to those inmates there and help them to encounter Christ. Here's something you can always do. Pray as Christians. How would you pray today for those in prison? How would you pray for those on death row? How would you pray for those who work in prisons? Now, there's a tough job. How would you pray for our judicial system, for judges and juries? How would you pray for families of prisoners? How would you pray for families of those affected by violence? I'm going to move to euthanasia. Literally, it means a good death. It's also been called assisted suicide, sometimes uh, more positively death with dignity or mercy killing. Please hear me clearly on this next part. It is not the same as removal of life support. When all treatment options have been exhausted, here's some other things. If the person's already actively dying and we're only postponing the inevitable and the person has a, an advanced directive that I th and they don't ask for artificial support, then I think it is a good thing to remove life support. Several of you have been in that situation, I bet. Uh, I was talking to 
uh, a physician in our midst that, uh, after the first service, and she was telling me that in the state of Texas, suffering has been removed as one of those qualifiers for uh, removal of life support. I didn't know that. Uh, there's three states in which assisted suicide is allowed, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. There's a couple of other states where it's kind of uh, iffy, gray, Montana, and New Mexico. And then there's some other states where it's in conversation right now. So I'm step away from my notes. I'm having to stay, stay near my notes here because I, I want to be real clear in what I'm saying to you guys about these hard subjects. But at this part, I get to be a little playful. So uh, two years ago, um, y'all allowed me a summer off. I had a summer sabbatical. I had 10 weeks off, and I, I hiked a bunch on the Appalachian Trail. And, but every day I wrote some, and I wrote a short novel, and you're waiting for that novel. I know you're eagerly waiting. That, the, the name of the novel is The Last Kiss. And in the novel, I'm, I'm the protagonist, okay? The, the protagonist is a Methodist pastor who contracts an almost universally fatal disease. I get it while I'm caving. And this disease is, is airborne, but you wouldn't catch it just this distance here. But if I were to kiss you and have that intimate exchange of air, then you would get the disease. And within 24 hours, you would die. You would just slowly shut down, slow down your breathing, it would be a painless, merciful way to die. But when I get this disease in the novel, I lose my job in the church. Believe it or not, nobody would like to have a pastor like that. And I'm really struggling on disability pay and all. And nearly lose my marriage and kids and all this. But I get a job, thankfully, at a hospice. Y'all know about hospice? Hospice is... Wonderful movement that, that helps people in the last stages of terminal diseases. By the way, we're all terminal. Did y'all know that? We're, we're, we're all going to die. Okay, just to let you know. So um, <clears throat> I get a job as a chaplain, and I want to use my disease as a gift. You see, I want to help people who are suffering to have this painless, merciful death with dignity and to do it with a kiss. The, the setting of my novel is back in the 1980s. Do y'all remember Dr. Kevorkian, Dr. Death? Okay, so I'm the opposite of Dr. Death. Dr. Death was a very clinical, you know, scientific, sterile kind of, of, of helping people uh, to die. Mine is worshipful. It's holy. And in my book, I mean, I, I was going to help a person in an, in an act of worship. Like when you're passing the peace that traditionally is called the Passing the kiss of peace. Kiss one another with a holy kiss. Remember this? Share the peace. So I would kiss this person and then within 24 hours they would die. It's in its second or third rewrite. Wait for it and it comes out as an e-book here very shortly. Okay, thanks. All right. Uh, <laughs> continuing. In the book, I didn't know that I was going to come out in favor of euthanasia when I started writing it. I was surprised at this. Here are the four reasons to practice this. In the book, <laughs> if the person passed a mandatory psychological consultation with a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was able to certify that the person was making a sane free will decision, not out of any underlying psychological disorder or disease, then that was a good thing. Second, 
There was chronic pain that palliative care could not totally manage. It was to end the suffering. Three, the person was terminal. They had less than six months to live. And fourth, there were independent witnesses, two at least, who would not benefit from this death. They would confirm that this was a good thing to have. I understand how you could push back against my position very easily and say, aren't you playing God? Yeah. And you could say, isn't there a redemptive quality to suffering? Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at the martyrs and, and all that. I mean, this is part of our Christian ethos, isn't it? To, to undergo suffering. I, I understand that. Uh, please, please understand the United Methodist Church, as I read our book of discipline, it does, we say we're totally against assisted suicide. And yet there's Grandmother Johnson <laughs> who lived to be just over 100 years old, maybe 102. My grandmother, I would go to see her in the nursing home in Bertram, Bertram out here, and the last times I would go to see her, I'd be leaving. She, she was racked with arthritis. I mean, I mean, her hands were claws, just, just curled up and just bony structures all over, just knots. And I'd say, Grandmother Johnson, may I pray for you? And she'd say, Lynn, pray that I will die. And I would hold Grandmother's hand and I'd pray that she would die. It, I, know it's, I know it's a hard line out there. I mean, where do you draw this um, about helping someone to die? We have some things to help you here in the... In this church, I was talking to Gordon Dean, who's in charge of our permanent endowment fund. And a few months ago, we came out with getting your house in order. It's to help people have conversations about life and death and to make sure you have a will and to make sure you have a, a directive to your physician and to make sure that you have a, a, a medical power of attorney and, and many other things. And I put some copies of this out in the narthex there if you would like to take one of these packets home to help you in your conversation about this subject. Always, always we pray. How would you pray for someone with a terminal illness? I suspect many of you know someone right now who's dealing with that situation. How do you pray for their care team, for the doctors, nurses, and other staff? How, how do you pray for the family members of those who are dealing with a terminal illness? Third, the issue of abortion. And boy, this one is filled with landmines. I really don't want to step on, right? Boy, we divide up so easily, so quickly into camps of pro-life and pro-choice. I need to tell you that for the longest time growing up, I was adamantly against abortion. Through 37 years of marriage and conversation with this person and through 37 years of being a pastor and a conversation with a lot of other people, um, I have a much more nuanced response today. I understand about a woman's right to her body. <laughs> I understand about issues of poverty that contribute to this. I understand about depression that might lead to suicide when someone has an unwanted pregnancy. I understand now about the desertion of a father figure. The, uh, I understand about the influence of drugs, and I understand about sexual abuse. It, it's really tough. It's a really hard issue. 
In the United Methodist Church, we don't have a definite stance here. I was reading the book of Discipline, and it said, we offer an informed opinion when it comes to abortion. We offer food for thought. We believe in the sanctity of life, including that of the unborn child, but we also believe in the sacredness of life and the well-being of the mother. So we, we play both sides. We do oppose late-term abortion, and we oppose abortion that uh, leads to gender selection. Always, always, we try to offer ministry to all people, all of those involved. And, and I would invite you to, how, how do we pray for all of those people, for, for persons who are struggling with that issue of abortion and those family members and, again, medical teams and all? Uh, one response that the United Methodist Church has in this area is something now called Providence Place. In 1895, there was a home called the Methodist Mission Home established in San Antonio there was a, a woman who ran a brothel in San Antonio who fell under Methodist preaching and was converted to Christ. And she turned her brothel into a home for unwed mothers. That is the, the genesis of our Providence Place. They now provide adoption services for, for many people. There's, there's a very positive response to a, a difficult situation. I'm going to close with a, a story here, a couple of stories. One is a, a story of a, a woman that I, I respect greatly, a member at another United Methodist Church here in town. And she said, uh, for me, abortion was exactly the right call. She said, uh, I, I don't regret it. I don't have the guilt, the shame. It was exactly what we needed to do at that time in our lives. And then I, I'm going to read this other story. It's from Adam Hamilton, a book called Confronting the Controversies. I've, I've read three of his books about controversies over the last 10 or 12 years. It's been wonderful to see his evolution of thought um, over this time. He's sort of our Methodist guru. I know a lot of our classes here go to his material and um, always has a good way to make things, thing, uh, things for us to think about. In, in this story, um, he was preaching about abortion. And he asked for responses from his congregation. He got all kinds of letters and emails and things. And there was this one story of, of a mom who got pregnant at 17. Her boyfriend was 16. Um, this couple went to a high school party and people went off into separate rooms and they had intercourse and, and, uh, and she got pregnant. I know this never happens today, but it did happen then, okay? And she got pregnant and... Her father at that time uh, wanted to send her to Switzerland to have an abortion. Abortion was not legal here in the United States at that time. She refused to do that. She wanted to keep the child. She had to leave her house. She moved in with her, uh, the father of her baby. They got married. They moved to another state with his family. They were married for 12 years before they divorced. She never got a high school education, never went to college. And this is what she wrote to Adam Hamilton. Uh, Adam wondered if she ever regretted being a single mom or regretted, regretted her decision not to have an abortion. She said, yes, my life changed dramatically due to the pregnancy prior to marriage. But to this day, that child has been the greatest blessing to me and thousands of others. God has blessed me more with this son than I can ever imagine being blessed. I'm so proud of the husband and father that he has become so many times when I look at him, I think that this incredibly kind spirited person could have ended up aborted, but instead, due to the classes in Sunday school week after week that taught me as a child, 
I knew that even from the moment he was conceived, he was a gift from God. I look back sometimes at the college that I missed, the experiences that could have been, and thank God that I chose God's way. My life is different than it could have been, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Thank you, Adam, for being my gift from God. There can be no greater gift than that of a child that God wants to be born. I never dreamed 36 years ago while I was carrying you that you would have the impact on God's people and me that you do. You are my pastor, my confidant, and my best friend. I love you. Mom. That's Adam Hamilton's mom. The good news is that as followers of Christ, we can talk about anything. We can talk about life and death. Because we believe in this Jesus who has lived for us and died for us and been raised again from the dead for us, who deserved death, and he's offered us life. That's the good news I have to share with you this day. Amen.